our idea of entering the scene was a direct reaction to what you would call fine dining. It would go back 15 years, and that was kind of the the dividing line, you know? Like, you go to a, a fine dining restaurant, and there's you make a reservation, there's a tablecloth, there's certain things, right? And then you go to a casual restaurant, and those things are, are removed. After, like, noodle bar, Mofuku noodle bar, and, you know, it's kind of like, as another cook, you see, okay, there is a technique, there is a, there's certain things that, there's a lot of care being taken with the food and with the experience. I think that that was something that when we opened, I wanted to consciously, you know, tackle for ourselves was like, we don't have the money to make space or the, uh, or anything about it look more fine dining than it, than it, than it actually was. And we were in the Lower East Side where, you know, it, it didn't make sense for us to do something that didn't fit the neighborhood. Every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process with your host, Emmanuel. Welcome to the latest episode of the Flavors Unknown podcast, where we take you on a journey through the exciting and ever-evolving world of food, beverage, and hospitality. In today's episodes, we are thrilled to share our experience of attending the Star Chefs event in New York City, where we had the pleasure of joining some of the newest class of rising stars and showcasing some of the most innovating and exciting things happening in this industry across the city. This year's event recognized 24 outstanding food and beverage professionals for their exceptional skills and leadership, as well as their commitment to supporting the local community. And I have been lucky enough to have had the opportunity to moderate a panel discussions for the company Simrise with five culinary leaders from around the city. I am your host, Emmanuel Roche. I have been in industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the U.S., and every other week, I have genuine conversations with acclaimed chefs, pastry chefs, and mixologists from around the country, where we are talking about their path to success, their creative process, and how their cultural background influences their creative process. Join this panel discussion as we explore the latest trends and ideas shaping the industry with Chef Jeremiah Stone from Contra. Chef Trick Brown from Winson, Chef Rafid Salim from Rollo's, Pastry Chef Celia Lee from Novo, and Mixologist Matt Raisin from Alcoro. Together, we'll share insights into our own experience in the food and beverage world and give you an insight look into the minds of some of the most innovative and exciting professionals in the industry. So sit back, relax, and get ready for another delicious episode of Flavors Unknown. The panel discussion was 90 minutes long, so I decided to split it into two episodes. The second part of our discussion will be aired next week. So welcome to the panel discussion. We are here at uh, Winson in Brooklyn. Very excited to have all the guests. 
So if you don't mind, like just giving a top line, introducing yourself. Hello, I'm uh, Rafiq Salim. I'm the chef and owner of Rolos. Hi, I'm Trig Brown. I'm the chef and owner of Winson Restaurant and Bakery. Hi, I'm Jeremiah Stone. I'm the chef owner of Contra and Wilder in the Lower East Side in Manhattan. Hi, I'm Celia. I'm the pastry chef at Atomix's new restaurant, Nado. Welcome to see you all again. Uh, my name is Matt Risen. I am the bar director for Mel's, El Coro, and Tisclo over in Chelsea. I always like to start the conversation going back to your childhood because a lot of things sometimes that, you know, I want to discuss with chefs and I'm going to say chefs, but it's assuming pastry chefs and, you know, mixologists, it's easier. That uh, there's a lot of inspiration that comes from, you know, from childhood. So when you close your eyes and you go back in time, what are like the smell and flavors that come to your mind thinking about your childhood? I guess the first thing that comes to mind as a childhood is like the the smell of the potatoes boiling and like rice cooking out of a rice cooker. You know, my father is Indonesian Arab and my mother is Dutch. I grew up in the Netherlands. I moved when I was seven. But, you know, every night of the week, it was like either we eat rice with Indonesian food or potatoes with Dutch food. Those are like very... I don't know, the smell of potatoes cooking in water. It's like a distinctive smell and rice coming out of a rice cooker. That kind of, that smell is very distinctive and has a strong kind of, you know, simple flavor memory, but a very strong one for me. I had my, I got my first, first job when I was 14 at like a local bakery in New Jersey. And I think that's where I first learned more about how bread was properly made. And I think I instantly fell in love with the smell of yeast, like fresh yeast. From there, I I didn't know that pastry in general was very scientific. So I think from there, that's when I really, really started to realize like, oh, bread is just so much more than just putting things in a bowl and like putting in the oven. So that's when I started to really, really focus more on like the baking part of my journey. I think for me, a lot of the, my childhood memories are, are sort of a mix of things that I have a negative association with and positive. I grew up with uh, my heritage, everyone's Chinese, but my parents are not great cooks. They're okay. So like some things are really good, some things are not. I think my, my mother didn't really grow up with her mother. So there wasn't really like a direct, a lot of like direct teaching. She kind of remembers some things from when she was a, a child and she grew up with her grandmother. So a lot of things are like the flavors and the smells of things that are slightly incorrect. And, but, you know, based on an actual dish or based on, and, and just living in America for so long, sort of adapting with the ingredients. Can you give us an had. example? Like she used to make a, a dish that's, that's supposed to be like a Chengdu style potato. It's like barely cooked, really thinly sliced a little bit vinegary, a little bit spicy, and you cook it from raw. But when it's done right, it's kind of um, al dente in a way. And then she would cut rusted potatoes like french fries and then cook it with onions and cook it a little too far. So it was a little bit too cooked, but still raw. And when you're like a child, you're like, oh, these are just not cooked potatoes. Like they're supposed to be french fries. But they're not. <laughs> and so like those, I think those memories of like some dishes were really done right and interesting and others weren't. And it's sort of like, I remember those things I didn't like. And then later in life, you kind of revisit or you wonder why 
they were not right and like what needed to be adjusted with those with the the, the flavor to make it what could have been a great dish. Treg? Uh, similar kind of not similar, but uh, I've, I've I have four brothers, so my mom was trying really hard, and you know. Potato as in pastas? And yeah, no, rice. I mean, yeah, I don't even, I, I don't even really associate food like with my mom. I, it, it, she did a great job raising us. It's just, I don't, you know, it was a lot, it was a lot for her to raise five kids. So we, you know, I, I think if I think of like early childhood memories associated with food, you know, maybe like stewed tomatoes and more Southern food that my grandmothers would, would make. They were both pretty, pretty good cooks, you know, like Easter lamb, special occasion stuff. You know, I grew up in the restaurant business and started cooking when I was 15 uh, or, you know, washing dishes when I was 15. And I think food smells, what, you know, really like shocked me was, you know, and I, I've heard other people talk about this, but when I was 19, I started trailing at craft in the summers when I'd, I'd come up and visit my brother and sleep on his couch and work at craft. And multiple people have talked about this that I've encountered, but it's a basement kitchen. Whenever you go down in the basement, you kind of get knocked in the face by the stock kettle. That sticks with me. So similar, like what you're saying about like this, like correctness or whatever. I, you know, I'm not, don't, I'm not passing judgment on my mom or you know anything like that. But like something about the way I learned about food at craft over the years and the smells that I associate. You know, I think psychologically, smell and nostalgia are the most closely related senses or something. And uh, that's what I always think of, you know, even though it's not necessarily child. I mean, 19 you know, as a kid, but Matt? Well, for me, so I grew up in a household where no one was really cooking. My mom could cook, you know, chicken cutlets, but they were super, super dry. And, but you know what? That's, that's what I ate. <laughs> but my, as far as food and earliest memories, other than like sitting in front of a box of cereal was um, fruit was, a, was really big in my household. We went to the beach quite a lot growing up. So peaches, watermelon, just like cantaloupe, just like really fresh fruit is something I really remember. And to this day, I eat a ton of fruit daily. I work with fruit all the time. But to me, that's like where, like where my mind goes from when I was a, a kid. So there wasn't a ton of food. I grew up in my parents' bar. So as far as like smells, I, I remember the smell of beer and like wine shops. Everyone knows like when they walk into a wine store and they smell that cardboard, just like smells like bottles. but. Those are the biggest memories for me in terms of smell, but yeah, fruit, I'd say, for me. So how did you get into whatever you are doing today? So either mixology or, you know, pastry or like desserts and or cooking. How did I get into cooking? I cooked a lot. My, my parents, you know, not professional cooks, just both great home cooks and always love to eat. Found my way in the kitchen all the time. In high school, I cooked in like a small, like mom and pop strip mall, kind of red sauce Italian joint. And then I went to college. I did not pursue cooking. I was like a, I got a, I have a degree in finance and geophysics, which did me, you know, no good. I don't remember anything from either. I think I'm and sure then, we um, a recipe together at least. Uh, I cooked in college a bit during school to make money, and then I worked in. Um, banking for like two years and i hated it i quit i like traveled for a year and then you know just decided to give cooking a shot i started cooking in south florida then palm beach and then you know i went to did that for a year and a half went to culinary school 
and then um you know work a couple restaurants in new york city and you know here i am i'm korean and i grew up in a very i have a tiger mom so i'm just used to i actually like i know this sounds like kind of crazy but i really like working in extremely extremely labor-intensive kind of environments but what i remember like I thought baking was interesting just because it's not like cooking. If you make a sauce or something, and I'm sorry if I'm wrong because I'm not a good cook, but if you like make a sauce and you don't like the flavor or something, you can fix it by adding more spices or anything to your taste. But for a pastry, it's different. If you forget like one ingredient, especially like salt, sugar in bread, you cannot fix it. You literally have to start from the bottom. And I always wonder when you watch like um, moms like on cooking shows and they literally eyeball everything making a cake. It literally <laughs> breaks my heart. I watch that and I just say, no, 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 no. But I guess like back then that's how it was made. But I can never like I, you know, I can't bake anything by, with my eyes. But when I told my parents I wanted to go to pastry school, I think they thought it was a phase. Because, you know, they wanted me to become a doctor or something like that. But they thought it was a phase. But and I didn't tell them like after I graduated that I applied to the French pastry school in Chicago and I got accepted. I had all my stuff together and I told them a week before I was leaving. Oh, oh I'm, really? I'm going to Chicago next week. And they were like, what? Where? And I was like, I'm going to the French pastry school. And they're like, what? And I was like, yeah, it's right next to the Sears Tower. It's. I think it'll be great. <laughs> and they're like, where are you going to live? Like, where, where are you going to go? I was like, I, I don't know, but I'm going to live in a street called South Peoria Street and everything is all set. And then the next day they're like, oh, okay. And so they dropped me off at the airport and I, and I left. And the reason why I chose pastry in the beginning was just to prove to my parents that I wasn't a face. Even there were multiple times where I thought, I don't think this is for me. You know, if, my, if I like baked cookies and they burned or something, I was like, this is not my jam. Maybe the, I chose the wrong career. But I wanted to prove to my parents until this day that it's not a phase. And I ended up really, really loving it. So that's why I am here. But also I chose fine dining because it's extremely rough. You know, they have been too narrow, your parents? Yeah, my parents have, but my dad is extremely, he's super Korean. Like, <laughs> no, like, yeah, he's, he doesn't really like fine dining and doesn't really go to fine dining restaurants. So he would literally like scream at the server at the front of house, like, uh, excuse me. Or like, I'll be like, I, I don't know why. Like I, at the end of the night, everyone had like $10 in their pocket because my dad was just like giving them like $10. It was so weird. It's like, oh, like buy a snack. And then you. They were like, come up to me like, oh, your dad gave me like $5 or $10. I'm like, why is this happening? <laughs> no, that That's was so pretty funny. much it. Like my parents, they're not. No. They should not be in that scene at all. And my dad always wears like these sunglasses, even if it's like midnight. I don't know why. It's He thinks he's like really, really hot in like those cool sunglasses. Dad. Okay. Yeah. And then like I told him, if you walk into this restaurant with those sunglasses, I'm immediately kicking you out. Like it's you're done. And then he showed up with his regular reading glasses, but he still had those sunglasses in his pocket and he still wore them when he left the restaurant. So 
So how do they react when they taste your desserts where you have Korean ingredients, you know, in them that obviously they can associate with, um, but express into a very modern way? So how, what's their reaction to well, that? Well, their reaction was when my dad got the desserts that I made, he asked the waitress 20 times if I really made this. <laughs> And even if he shows off about me to his friends, he goes like, oh, Celia works in the best bakery in New York. And I'm like, I don't work in a bakery. I work in a restaurant. And he's like, yeah, yeah, bakery, restaurant, same thing. No, no, no. But I think from that, from there, like they realize like, oh, oh, what is this? It's ice cream. It's like in a nice quenelle. And they're like, why is ice cream like this? So for them, it was more eye-opening for them to okay. see like what I actually do. So I don't think I no longer work in a bakery in my dad's eyes. So. Okay, so good step. That's a big plus. Good step. Okay, wh- what else about how to get uh, into it? So for me, so growing up in, I think growing up in the, the bar business, you know, my dad owned a bar for 30 years. My mom was a bartender. My grandpa was a bartender. My earliest memories are sitting at the bar, like watching Power Rangers, like 3 p.m. after school. My dad would pick me up, drop me off at, at the bar, and I would do my homework and just sit around with the 3 p.m., you know, drinkers of the time. So that was probably, the, those are the earliest memories of me in, in a space of hospitality and a bar. Flash to, I guess I was 19, 20. I I'd switched majors probably five different times. I wanted to be in advertising. I wanted to be a lawyer. There was a lot that I kind of jumped around doing, but I always had a creative kind of bone in my body. I would watch cooking shows when I was a kid and try to like, emulate that when I was 12, which is bizarre because I, I haven't cooked a meal in probably 10 years if it wasn't like a pre-made delivery service. I'm sorry to all the, <laughs> the chefs here. <laughs> but yeah, no, I started as a, as a bar back. I got a job at, at, a, at a restaurant and just on that trail that night, you know, I kind of fell in love with the, the chaos of, and this was fine dining as well, you know, as a lot of our jobs, whether it's, you know, kitchen or we're a uh, dining room. We, we get chucked into this industry in every position we're in, whether it's a dishwasher, bar back, you know, sous chef, manager, you know, you really do just kind of get thrown in there and you kind of have to, you know, sink or swim and it's kind of survival mode. And I really, I played sports growing up. I was a baseball player. I was really athletic and I identified with that type of environment and just also working with a team. I think I really fell in love with being in a group of people. That is really what kind of fell in love with the industry. And then like the beverage stuff kind of came later. I really fell in love with the whole just front of house work. You know, I loved working in the back as well. You know, being in the bar, we have a very unique experience other than, you know, serving staff. Whereas we have, you know, one foot in the the dining room and another foot in the kind of the kitchen. I've always worked in restaurant bars, cocktail bars, where there's a lot of, you know, prep and, you know, whatnot. So just kind of in a kitchen environment, but also working working in the front. So I would say the, the first, what really got me into liquid though, was probably crap beer. I, that was kind of what introduced me to, to, you know, good, good drinks. I remember just like the, that like fresh smell of, you know, the IPAs back, you know, 12 years ago when the crap beer movement was like kind of soaring and just, you know, identifying all these different flavors and smells and, that really just was super alluring to me, but I definitely fell in love with, yeah, the service first. That's, that's where it began. Jeremiah, what about you? I wanted to be a DJ. So I was uh, DJing from like 13 to 18. 
I was good for my age, but I, I just was hanging around a lot of people that were really, really good and they were much older. And so when I, I think I was kind of appreciated at, you know, at 13, 14, I was like, oh, he's really good. And then by the time I was kind of graduating high school, I was not as good as probably like the rest of the people I knew who were in their 20s. And, you know, I would go and carry the crates, you know, they would be playing some of like the, the biggest clubs at the time. And I would just be 19 or 18 or 17 hanging out. And I kind of looked the same. <laughs> I still look the same age. So I think that nobody like really questioned why I was there. But then a, a good friend of mine who's a ended up being a really successful DJ was like, so what are you going to like, what are you going to do? And I was just like, I'm the DJ. What do you mean? Like DJ, you're DJing, I'm DJing. He's like, no, but like, you know, I still have to work. He had like a day job and he was a really like successful DJ, but he still had to have a day job. And he was like, you're not as good as like I am. And I'm, you know, been doing this for 15 years already. I was like, oh yeah, like maybe I'll, I was like DJ on the weekend you know, for fun, get a real, you know, day job. So I think it was, I graduated high school. I worked in a record store in high school. And then for that, that year as I graduated and then I was a terrible student. So I had like no plan to go to college. And then my sister-in-law was just like, uh, they're hiring at the restaurant that I work in. It was, it was Hillstone. So it's like a really, it's an upscale restaurant for a chain. And it was like very, you know, organized and they pay well. So I was like, oh, that's way more than I'd get paid any other job without having, you know, any experience. So I was a service bartender there. I was underage, so I couldn't actually be at the regular bar. So I was making like, you know, all the cocktails, <laughs> like 18 years old, just like shaking up, you know, martinis and stuff. And I did that for like maybe less than a year. And then it was across from, you know, the kitchen. It was like the kitchen, the garmage station was like, was like directly, like only two feet away from the from the service bar so we would constantly be and in the bar we made the desserts for the restaurant as well and so constantly be talking and i'd be looking over and seeing what everyone was doing so a few months in i was like i want to start you know doing some of these little elements and then they kind of created a position for me where you know i was cooking and then expoing you know some of the nights and and i would basically work the line when the restaurant was slow and it was it was non-stop so it would there was no stop between lunch and dinner. So in the in-between, you know, I would work the two stations with another, with the, the head chef or the kitchen manager. And um, I did that for two years and I really liked it. But they were like, you know, you kind of, you have a lot of potential, but maybe this is, there's a limit here. You know, get in whole tuna and break it down and filet. And there was, there was some, you know, not everything was, was a lot of ingredients were fresh and, but, you know, it's the menu never changes at this restaurant. And so, and you don't do some foundational thing. So they're mm -hmm. like, maybe go to school and, and take a little further. Yeah, but further. at the time, from what I understand, you were looking for like a day job to get yeah. money. Yeah. So when was like the moment when I think was a just switch to say, nah, I had that's always, what I want to do from the rest of my life and I'm good at it. I think just that, that my mentor there just said, you should go to culinary school. Okay. He was like, it seems like you really, I, and I always cooked at home just for myself because I was alone most of the time. And, you know, I was kind of a latchkey kid. So I, I would make my own, you know, dinners and stuff. And then my manager at that restaurant was like, you know, like, you should probably take this a little bit more seriously. And I was like, yeah, like how? And he's like, just go to, you know, go to school and whatever. And I just, you know, I, I looked up, I think I looked up two schools and then 
looked up French Culinary Institute and CIA, and I was like, CIA, you have to you have to take other classes? No way. Like, you have to do math and, you know, science? So I just, I went to French Culinary, which is not existent anymore. anymore but yeah. That was on Broadway? That one? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, it's, it's convenient. I'm going to, it's where I want to be. I don't want to be in, in Hyde Park. And I, wanted, and I had to work. So I was like, mm-hmm. this is the only situation where I could work as well as go to school. And then after that, just, yeah, took okay. off and stayed with it. And the rest is history. Yeah. As we said. Trig, top line. I'll make it quick. I, uh, I lived in the country uh, in, outside of Richmond. I had to pay, pay for gas money to get around. So I started washing dishes, save up for gas money. And I hated that, but I liked smoking joints with the chefs and I liked eating a burger and fries. I was easy, like easy sell. I was, I was in it for the burger and fries shift meal I got every night. We were called the Red Oak Cafe. It's kind of a honky little restaurant outside of Richmond. The slogan was a little out of the way, a lot out of the ordinary. All the other restaurant people in town knew us as the White Oak Cafe. So I was like doing blow with my boss at 15. My friends were selling him blow. I, I was like at the top of my class in high school. I got, you know, I'm salutatorian graduate. It's so like, it was this weird line. I loved restaurants because I always got in a lot of trouble in high school. So yeah. restaurant was like, unsupervised. But if I remember, you did English, right? You had an <laughs> yeah, English major, no? I, yeah, I went to, I got into UVA early. So like, and everybody in the restaurant was like, don't go to culinary school. You don't want this job. You don't want to be like me. And I was like, I do. <laughs> I love this, you know? Was, and I, I thought of it as a party job. I, I was having fun. You know, the brunch cooks would drink Long Island iced teas at work. And I looked up to them and I, you know, luckily didn't develop a bad drug problem. You know, I'm very fortunate for that, right? Like looking back on it, that's a dangerous position to put a kid in. And, uh, you know, I'm very grateful for certain mentors that kept me like, you know, straight enough. Right. But, uh, I don't, I don't know really how I made it through that. But when I got to, uh, Charlottesville and you know, immediately started looking for cooking jobs, cause I've been cooking for a few years at that point. So I, I cooked at an Orient Express hotel called Keswick Estate. And I met this guy, Pei Chang. And he's from California, but his family's uh, politically Chinese from Taiwan. And uh, he just hit me to a lot of, a lot of like, cool stuff. And like, he was my mentor at the uh, honoree dinner a couple, few years ago. And uh, he, would tell, he encouraged me to stay cooking and take it more seriously. And I, you know, that's where I started learning. I, I got a CIA textbook there working for him. And I don't, he didn't go to the CIA or anything, but he, I just got you know, a textbook from one of the other cooks. And Started approaching it more academically, more seriously, and you know, realized it wasn't a party job, and kind of kept going from there. But you know, that that was uh, it was just funny. Like I, you know, there was this transition in high school where I was, thought it was a party job, and really enjoyed the unsupervised. Uh, it was an interesting, an interesting transition, but very grateful to pay. Let's talk a little bit about the. Um, let's switch to the um, the culinary scene here in uh, in New York. So you guys have been in your position, you know, number of years. Of course, different from you know from one to another. How would you say that you see uh, the uh, the culinary scene in New York evolving in the past, like recent years? I don't want to talk about like you know the whole situation of the pandemic and so on. Let's say that kind of a helicopter view. How, what do you see like the big tendency in terms of? food or drinks or, you know, these are trends here in, in the city? For drinks, at least for me, it does relate, I think, a lot to in a post-pandemic world, but I, we were kind of going this way for the last, I guess, five or six years. But 
I'd say 15 years ago, 20 years ago, when the cocktail revolution kind of started with bars like Attaboy, Milk and Honey, of course, uh, PDT, us bartenders were making drinks primarily for ourselves. So and like we were educating the guests because they were giving them drinks that they've never had before. But in part, a lot of it was our own, like we wanted to make the drink for us, where nowadays we're listening more to what the guests are asking and giving them cocktails that they have been asking for all along, but while still staying true to ourselves. So really giving folks approachable cocktails that, you know, are not super, you know, I mean, they're complex in a way that we make them complex, but we're just making it a bit more approachable for them, I think. Can you give us an example of how it's on Well, yeah, I would say, I mean, for me, the agave boom, I discussed it with you guys yesterday when I was making cocktails, but, you know, just this, like the margarita, people just keep going back to it. They keep going back to what makes them feel good. They want easy decisions. They don't want to be inundated with too much information, I think, as well. So, you know, for me, when I build out a cocktail menu, I don't throw every single, you know, spirit or liquor in there. I, I deal mostly with flavors. So it might be a tequila cocktail, but you're not going to, it's going to give you the, the flavor components of that drink rather than the obscure fortified wine that's in there that no one really cares about. I think people want to know stuff, but they don't want to know, you know too much. Comfort is definitely something people are looking for and yearning for in a post-pandemic world. They just want to feel good. They want easy decisions. They want to have fun with their friends and they want to you know, celebrate. But I, I think just going back to what makes them feel good is, is what's been happening you know, recently. And I think bartenders, at least the ones who are doing it right, are, are the menus reflect what the guests are asking for. If you have a menu where you know, they're only ordering that one or two cocktails you're, and they're not ordering the whole menu, then you should rethink how you're you know, creating drinks for the, for the public. But yeah, definitely like giving people what they want, but not in like the, the too basic way, I guess. <laughs> okay. So are we going to continue to see like, uh, you know, thinking about giving the people what they want, like a lot of low alcoholic drinks, less boozy, I would say, profile of cocktails as well. You know, another big thing that we have seen recently was all the bitter, you know, bitter scenes. Are we going to see more of that from your point of view? Um, yeah. I mean, the bitter scene... <sighs> You know, I, I said, um, I, I feel like I, I had this conversation with you guys yesterday, which was great, but um, like the Negroni, for example, has surpassed the old fashioned. Um, the American palate is definitely leading a bit more bitter, whereas, you know, Europeans were brought up, they're brought up drinking, you know, bitter ingredients. French people are, you know, born drinking, you know, pastis. So those flavors are really, really familiar to them. So when they are of age, this is, you know, what they're drinking. Whereas for us, you know, when I was 18, I was drinking Jerry and Coke, you know, but when I, I really saw it when I was working at Dante, you know, a couple of years ago, we were getting NYU kids and they were drinking Negronis. And it was like a pleasure to see such young, like a group of young people drinking a cocktail rather than, you know, drinking to get wasted. The way people are drinking has changed. You know, people are, are, you know, drinking, you know, with food or with friends, they're finding reasons why, you know, instead of just like drinking to get drunk, they're, you know, it's the whole aperitivo way, which is quite, quite big in Europe, of course. But I think people are, you know, grouping those things together. So like, you know, food and drink have, have never been so, you know, combined, I would say, in, in the food, okay. you know, business. Yeah, we come back to the food and, you know, and, and beverage pairing a bit later. Just want to hear from 
you know, the, just the chef to yeah. tack onto that. There's like this thing that people talk about a shift away from fine dining. And I think like, that's easy to perceive on a superficial level, but diving into that and like the people I'm sitting with here, like these guys, you know, your fine dining group that you work with is like a great example of like, you know, small business owners taking control of like the fine dining scene in their own way. And like Jeremiah, what you guys do, what you guys do at Roll, like it's like much, it's really, it is a new version of fine dining and like, uh, but from a, more controlled, you know, perspective or, you know, when you say control, what do you mean by that? Well, like, you know, you don't have to have a private equity firm driving all the decisions and, you know, Winson has it, it, visually, you know, it's, it's, it's more like a, a abundant or kind of uh, free form, I guess, like in, uh, in style, the stylistic nuances, like feels more like a neighborhood restaurant. That's what we set out to do. But, you know, like I, I would say it, it also had a lot of my, my, you know, more upscale experience is, is relied on more than, more than ever, you know, at Winson. And, and I, and I feel like, uh, you know, it's very easy to identify, you know, the level of quality that you guys are bringing to the food at Rolos or when you go to your restaurant, like, you know, it's just, I'm not to throw Gabrielle under the bus, but I went to Gabrielle Kruther a couple yeah. weeks ago yeah. and I was very excited to go because this guy's like, to me, you know, star. Yeah. badass. And I worked for a lot of his t lieutenants at Clickio and Sons and, you know, I'd rather go to ops and like, you know, get some poor really Gabrielle. good wine. Poor and Gabrielle. So, yeah, I, I know. Poor guy. Yeah. He's there every night. I, I feel like a, like a dick saying that, uh, <laughs> uh I've lost my filter, but you know, like I, I just don't want to pay for that, that level of food. I'd rather, I'd rather, you know, buy a ticket to Spain and like, you know, eat somewhere very like casual and, you know, or, or go to Naro. Like Naro was like incredible experience. I, I, I love your dessert. Like, yeah, yeah, it was, you know, it's, it's just, it's very interesting how people are eating these days and kind of to your point about drinking and how people are drinking and eating and doing that together. It's like, you know, there's definitely some sort of metamorphosis happening in our industry. And I think. It's so, I mean, this it's interesting because you're, you're talking about the example of your restaurant here, Winston, which is in the category of, you know, other restaurant that we see around the country that is based on, I mean, not f exactly for you because your background is not, you know, from Taiwan, but you see a lot of like the history, like of the impact of the ethnic background of like the chef, you know, and telling a story about where they are coming from, either themselves or their parents or grandparents. And it's through their cooking and how they combine that with, you know, their own way of growing up here in the U.S. and mixing, you know, the local ingredients with their heritage. But on the other end, you're, you're talking about like the metamorphosis, not easy for a French guy to say that, uh, you know, of the fine dining. So I, I just want to hear from you, maybe Jeremiah, a little bit about this. How, what's your point of view on, on the evolution of, of fine dining and the way how trick for me when we you know when we opened like 10 years ago our idea of entering the scene was a direct reaction to what you would call fine dining so the thing is now you look at it and now everyone you know you can go to a lot of places have really good experience without a tablecloth and without you know these these things that you expect but it's just it doesn't take very long you know go back 15 years And that was kind of the, the dividing line, you know, like you go to a, a fine dining restaurant and there's, you make a reservation, there's a tablecloth, there's certain things, right? 
and then you go to a casual restaurant and those things are are removed but you know after like after noodle bar, mofuku noodle bar and you know it was kind of like a lot a lot of, uh, you know i remember going and and i think as another cook you see okay there is a technique there is a there's certain things that you know i remember the one of the servers there in the beginning is like he had so much experience from all these fine dining restaurants and then you plug it into a, a very different situation and so you can still you know you sit on a chair without a back and you all these different things that you don't associate with fine dining but then it's like there's a lot of care being taken with the food and with the experience i think that that was something that when we opened i wanted to consciously you know tackle for ourselves was like we don't have the money to make the space or the or anything about it look more fine dining than it actually was and we were in the lower east side we're in you know it, it didn't make sense for us to do something that didn't fit the neighborhood and i worked at a at a michelin star restaurant down the street about you know a 2 minute walk and that was a few years before we had opened and it was trying to be really fine dining in that same neighborhood and it didn't it didn't last because just you know it's not like the neighborhood's not ready for it it's just you know sometimes it just doesn't make sense like the space even even like being in a tenement building in the lower east side it's like you're only going to ha- have so much room there's only so much you can really do to make it look nicer or 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 more elevated versus having a huge building you know located somewhere in midtown or flatiron so you know i think that and then also when we started we wanted to do very personality driven food food that was informed by my partner and myself's you know identity not just cultural identity but like cooking identity where we had worked where we had studied and 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 spent time with people and what we like to eat and i think that is is the trend now is is kind of like you go and and you eat now and there's and you you need to sit you need a less descriptors to talk about food 15 20 years ago every place you had to say what is it it's well it's you know it's a mix between it's japanese but there's a little bit of this and now i feel like just like with music you you know the goal is to to not put so many tags and descriptors on what the style of cooking and the style of restaurant is it's well it's a fun place the food's really good and like i have a hard time saying well cuz i think my you know so i wanted to ask you how would you describe i think my food style? is french so okay. the only people that think my food is french is french people so whenever we have guests and i tell somebody who's not french i said hey, oh like you know isn't yeah the food's kind of Japanese or I'm like no it's like kind of nordic now to me it doesn't seem but then when i have my friends who are older and french and and that's their experience they could be 60 70 years old they know what i'm trying to convey so i think the heart of it is french but at, at the end of the day that's the point it doesn't matter if no one recognizes it the way i recognize it because it's it's just meant to be a a, a personality driven food and that's becoming more and more common and i think you know hopefully in another 5 10 years it's just you never need to say it's unless it is unless it is a southern italian restaurant or a, a northern you know style you know japanese restaurant you just don't need to put all those those categories on top of it okay well i was just wondering so you know you always think of chefs as incredibly busy people same with bartenders my sister's a bartender like i always think okay there's these are people with zero time for like anything but we've had the chance to like you know in the last couple of days meet people who also talk about collaboration and ecosystems so i'm just wondering for you guys in new york city and you know if you have experiences in other cities as well like what is your impression of like the ecosystem here and 
like, you know, competitive versus collaborative and like your part in it? Like, what do you see as New York City's like personality for the hospitality industry? I've only really lived in New York and France, but my, I hope this is not offensive to those in LA or San Francisco, but my impression from just visiting and 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 meeting these chefs, they there's it's very competitive in a way that they don't even articulate to you that that you can just sense from the outside because I feel like New York tends to be so non-competitive when you actually think about it because there's so many places there's you know you're good like there's another if someone opens across from you doing the same thing there's enough people to go to both places so it's just a, I think most I I assume that I feel this way and most people just feel challenged to just make sure that you're you're delivering a good product versus feeling like competitive with with people who do something similar to you and I think that in LA or in in, in San Francisco and other cities there's just not as many you're just more spread out neighborhoods mean more you know if someone opens something very similar and you're in Culver City or something and you're the only place like that yeah I could see that being a bit of a of a threat but here I've always thought New York was the most collaborative. I have so many friends just like say, "Do you want to do this random thing? No one's going to make money on it, but you know, we're just like fine. Let's let's do that. Let's launch things together. Let's help each other with staff. Let's help each other." And I, I think that that probably only exists in in New York in my mind. But you is know? it as well the newer generation? So your generation of chefs? Yeah, I mean, so, compared to yeah, an older generation for sure. You know, it's all about like. Recipe control, not not sharing. Now it's a lot about collaboration. And every time I hear, you know, your generation talking about it, for sure. I think it, it's it's generational because there's more more people have opportunities to do places, and more people are willing to take chances and open in you know a smaller shop in in Lower East Side or in Brooklyn or something where you wouldn't need that huge midtown restaurant. That you know, yeah, if you open a French restaurant across from Lutes and you're doing fine dining French food, it's it's a threat. But like now there you know with the internet and everything you can find 50 versions of every type of of place just jumping on that it's like the it's the only place where you know you can have you know like when Josh and I were opening Winson I, I was coming from like a Steven Star restaurant with you know three PR firms and I, I was pretty certain our restaurant was not going to like succeed and and you know we we went about trying to make our community aware of us by collaborating and like, you know, you know, my friends and, and that, uh, you know, whenever we do a collaboration, it's like, you know, what you said, like it sticks out to me. It's like the collaboration is usually not about the money. It's like, let's just create a, like a, a splash or it's, you know, like whether it's like as superficial as a marketing splash or, but it's like really like, like that, there's value in that collaboration. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to focus so much on, you know, if it's a collaboration making it's the point is not money. It's like using each other's platforms and like accessing different types of people and like keeping everything. It's, it's cool. You know, nowhere is like New York in that, in that sense. And, you know, like it's fun to rag on your friends from LA or like San Francisco, but like in New York, there's not the same kind of Vietnamese or Mexican food necessarily. Uh, but you know, so it's fun to go to LA and get those types of cuisines. But, you know, whenever I'm in LA and I'm, and I'm like, oh, this place actually does have something to offer. You know, this, these tacos are amazing. It's like, you know, I think about New York and it's like, well, you know, New York's never going to 
you know, be, it's never going to lose. It's what it has to offer just because it's so hyper competitive that, like you said, it's like almost so competitive. It's that there's this lack of, there's like a, it was in, to interesting that. yesterday when we went to the bakery, like Mel, and she was talking to us about that people were surprised, but she's inviting like new bakeries that, you know, that want to start doing pop-up at her bakery. And that's, so a lot of people are... That's my bakery. Like, yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, I was going to mention that, that, you know, we're about to open a bakery maybe in like a, a month or so. We're like, and, you know, instead of going like the PR route and paying all that money for that, where I told Kelly, our baker, like, why don't we just like call up some friends and, and just see if we can just like, you tell them like, you know, you can keep all the money or what, whatever. We don't care about money. Like, let's just do something fun. And like, I mean, it was just like so cool that like so many people actually reached out that we, we can't even like kind of what, keep, how, keep up. How long did it take you to sell out at Bonnie's last weekend? Uh, like 30 minutes. Oh, wow. There were like 120 people like waiting outside. Really? Uh, and it was cool too that like Calvin, you know, we just know each other because like all of like his two chefs and his staff come to Rolos and vice versa. And it just sort of like build this sort of, I don't know, like restaurant friendship kind of thing, you know, That's which cool. is like, it's just so cool. And um, being able to collaborate with Calvin on a dish or on a, on a pastry. I mean, it's so cool. And then we were at, at, at uh, Mel, the baker. Nora is like so cool. And like Kelly and Nora don't know each other. Like Kelly just like sent her a Facebook message asking about a recipe, like how she was having trouble with some bread. And she like Nora, like just here. Yeah, this is how I do it. Like it was no competition like whatsoever. And then like one more thing to add about the, you know, my one of my business partners always talks about you know the, the rising tide you know raises all boats particularly like in ridgewood that where i am there's so many more restaurants and bars and places opening up over there you know it's all good like i'll be the first to introduce them to the neighborhood you know it's just it's good Thank you for joining us on this week's episode of the Flavors Unknown podcast, where we explore the latest trends and ideas shaping the food, beverage, and hospitality industry with some of the brightest culinary leaders in America. We hope you enjoyed this first part of our panel discussion with chefs Jeremy Stone from Contra, Trick Brown from Winson, Rafik Salim from Rollo's, pastry chef Celia Lee from Novo, and mixologist Matt Raisin from Alcoro. And we can't wait to bring you the second part of our discussion next week, where we delve deeper into their insights and experiences. If you enjoy this episode, please don't forget to follow Flavors Unknown on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Please share this episode with family and friends as we always welcome new listeners to the show. Until next time, and keep exploring new flavors and stay curious. And until then, keep in mind that the people who likes to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a follow on Instagram at Flavors Unknown and visit us at flavorsunknown.com. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.